Hi there, I'm Brian Breaker, editor of Ad Age, and you are listening to a very special episode of our AdLib podcast. Not only is it our first of the year, but we are doing this live, or at least live to drive, here at the Las Vegas Convention Center Press Lounge in the musty maw of the 2019 Consumer Electronics Show with a quick tip of the hat to our sponsor, Salesforce. Joining me today is Meg Goldthwaite, Chief Marketing Officer for NPR, who is here to discuss, among other things, all things voice. In a new survey from NPR and Edison Research, they found that 21% of the population now owns at least one smart speaker. The total number of devices in homes has increased 78% year over year. Maybe you're listening to one right now. 14 million people in the U.S. got their first smart speaker device in 2018. So this is clearly not a topic that's going away anytime soon. A lot to unpack here. Meg came to NPR by way of Conservation International and the Clinton Bush Haiti Fund, among other institutions working to make the world a better place. Arguably, inarguably, so does NPR. We'll get to that as well, but first, let's welcome Meg to the show. Meg, welcome. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for joining us in the glamorous press lounge, the Emerald Press Lounge here in the North Hall. How is your CES going so far? It's going well. I mean, other than bouncing around from place to place and trying to make sure that I am not late to one meeting or the other, it's fascinating. There's a tremendous amount of energy. This is the first day of sort of the opening, although I've been here since Sunday. Right. Um, so it's been fun to watch the excitement build. Um, how many have you been to? CEO? This is my second. Okay. How does it come? Was last year your first? Last year was my first. It was very exciting because I was moderating a panel during a time when all of the lights in the convention center went out. Right. I remember that. And yes. so um, we were able to enjoy um, broadcasting um, live and moderating a panel with a intermittent three minute apology for the lights being out and me trying to pretend like absolutely nothing was wrong and we were going to just keep on going. Man, the beauty of the lights going out when you're doing a panel is that it's the voices that matter anyway, right? Amen. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so far, no glitches. So we're stacking up a little better this year. What, do, you have, do you have goals when you're coming to CES? I really love to be here and take in all of the, you know, I'm a creative person, so I love taking in all the creative energy and seeing the big ideas and um, that. It's fun to get here and connect with people that I haven't seen. And um, it's obviously wonderful to be able to speak and share our message and sort of spread the word right. about NPR and what we're doing um, as often as I can. Cool. Well, well, we'll definitely get into all of that. NPR is, of course, audio. Audio is voice. You guys are, are, are publishers that have arguably been doing it the longest, so you're well positioned for this voice revolution. Um, what's the thinking here for you guys? Where are you now compared to, say, a year ago? How long have you been at, at NPR now? I've been at NPR for for about two years now. Since 2016, yeah, right? Yeah, since 2016. So how, how has that evolution since you've been there, thinking about voice? Well, when, you know, we have always been audio first. That is where we, um, you know, to your point, that's where we started about 50 years ago when a couple of our journalists tore out onto the mall with some microphones to capture some protests and bring people um, the news as it was happening. And um, we pride ourselves in making incredible audio experiences, but also bringing powerful content that transforms lives. So that is our sweet spot. 
we, um, when I first got here, smart speakers were just starting to take off. And um, I had just gotten one for Christmas myself. And um, we saw this as an amazing opportunity. There were a lot of people that said um, several years ago that radio was dead, right? And um, the beauty of smart speakers is they took a place where most Millennials didn't even have radios and wouldn't know how to turn them on if they had them nearby to putting a radio back in every single home through a smart speaker because a smart speaker quickly transforms into a radio when you ask it to play NPR or play Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me podcast. So that's where we are in terms of there's incredible new technology out there and it is a perfect place to showcase what NPR does best. So, you know, with, with all of that in mind, we, we flicked at some of this research at the, at the beginning of this, this segment. Um, talk about the, the, the research that you did with Edison and break down some of the findings and, and how you're going to sort of activate or move on those findings. Well, the reason that we went out and partnered with Edison to begin with was, you know, we had been working with the various manufacturers of this equipment to make certain that um, when someone opens up their Alexa, they can ask it to play NPR and we were developing those skills. So we were right there with that and we knew that it was taking off. But what we wanted to understand was exactly how people were using those smart speakers in their homes. So we partnered with Edison who went in and oftentimes spent the day with people in their homes, in their apartments, filming how are they using these devices, Google, Siri, um, Amazon, and understood how it was becoming part of their lives. So that's why we did the project. We started it about two years ago, and we, about every four months to six months, we we're coming out with new updates to that survey, which is what we just came out with um, just literally yesterday um, was when we put the new stuff out there. What's really interesting now is not just looking at the adoption of people who have a smart speaker, but it's the number of smart speakers that each person has. So when you have one smart speaker, you are more likely to then have two. And, and not even necessarily from the same brand. Exactly. Right? Actually, my house is a perfect example of that. We've got Amazon downstairs, we've got Google upstairs, we've got Apple series on our on our phone. So we, you know, we are non-denominational when it comes to how we access our smart speaker. Well, are you non-denominational in your conversations with these platforms? What what is NPR? What is the relationship like with Alexa, with Amazon, and how how what is the feedback you're getting from them versus say Google versus say Apple? We absolutely work on equal footing with every single one. The, the way that we get our content to our listeners is not important to us as much as making it so more people can access NPR. So we, we've worked closely from the get-go with Google, with Amazon, um, and with Apple when they put out their HomePod. So we, we are the same with all of them and um, just happy to make certain that when you say play NPR, it goes right not not only to NPR content, but it goes to your local public radio station. So Brian, you say you're from New York, you say play NPR to any of your devices in New York, it's gonna go right to WNYC. Right, which is a, I'm a unashamed, unabashed fan of, of NYC. Um, so, and, and in talking to them, they're like, you know, 
cool, no problem. We're gonna we're gonna put NPR at the top of the feed. I think the, what I'm getting at is a lot of the, a lot of marketers, traditional marketers, struggle with the platforms sort of invisibility, the invisible shelf. Like you don't know what you're going to get when you ask for something generically. I guess if you're asking for news generically, you may or may not get NPR, but if you ask for NPR specifically, you will. Is that a conversation you have with them? Can we, how do we get higher on the, on the Alexa or Google chain if you just say news? It's absolutely example? a conversation we have had with them. When Amazon launched Alexa, we were the default on that. We were also the default on Google. Um, what they heard their consumers saying was they wanted choice. And so on most of the platforms now, when you say play the news, it will say, okay, where would you like to get your news? In the case of Apple, actually the first thing that Siri says is, would you like NPR? But then it'll say, would you like Fox? Right. So um, it, it will balance it all out. Um, yes, of course, we would like to be the default. We want everybody to tune into NPR as their primary news source, but we realize that it's very important that people get their news from a lot of different places. And frankly, all boats rise when you access different points of view. <laughs> Correct, very nicely put. And I feel like this is a good place to plug the, the ad age skill. I'm just gonna put that out there and, and move right along. Um, putting on your uh, marketer's cap though, with this conversation, it's pretty revealing. Like you used to be the default, now like, now it's, you know, they're offering a choice, which is in the consumer's interest, quite frankly. Um, what do you say to marketers who are maybe not publishers that are, are going to these, uh, who want to be featured on one of these sort of platforms to increase their visibility? Do you have any tips, hacks, or advice for them? I have been asked that quite a bit um, at Podcast Movement over um, several months ago. There were a lot of, you know, you know, blossoming podcasters who wanted to know how they could have the same access. I mean, obviously, we have a unique relationship because of our content and right. because of the awareness of our brand that others don't with Amazon and um, Apple and Google. Um, so. I'm not sure I can give you hacks other than to say that, you know, I, Apple is a terrific partner in terms of getting your podcasts on. There are ways to make that happen. And um, there are ways to work with, you know, Amazon to develop skills. There are third parties that do that. Um, and we've worked with some of those. So there are ways to do it. I, I don't want to sort of say, oh, yeah, it's a piece of cake. Because right. I know for somebody who's just ripping their first podcast, that, that's a pretty heavy lift. Right. Yeah, you're, you're obviously a premier brand, but for the lesser known brands, discoverability remains a problem. And I think discoverability remains a problem, but also it, it's a problem for us as well. It's one of the reasons why I make it a point to come to CES and talk as much as I can to make certain that people know that you can access podcasts on your smart speakers. Most, not most, but many people see their smart speakers as a sort of some a dumb terminal that you can say, tell me what the weather is, or set a timer for the cake that I'm about to bake. Um, and what I want people to know is, not only can they stream their local public radio station, but they can ask for how I built this podcast by name. Um, and we are developing more and more at NPR, we're working to create content that does well on smart speakers. So a lot of short form, like we came out with the planet planet money indicator about a year ago um, that's a you know quick five to eight minute take on a number in the news so that you know I like to think about it like I'm going out to a party I want to sound smart play me planet money indicator while I'm going out and then I'm gonna have a quick little nugget to toss out at a cocktail so that, party. actually this is really good I'd like to sort of pull on this thread a little bit from either from your research or from your own experience not even necessarily NPR content but what content does perform best 
on these devices, we're speaking specifically about Alexa or Google Home, compared to, say, in the car, compared to, say, on a podcast. I mean, not every single listening environment is created equal. How, what works best where? So, obviously, in the car, you know, you're listening to your radio, you're going to be listening to one of our top-rated news magazines. So, Morning Edition or All Things Considered, Here and Now, um, through broadcast. At home, we're finding that one of the most listened to podcasts on smart speakers is Wow in the World, which is our podcast for kids. It's done with Guy and Mindy. They put together this great podcast that's very dynamic, fun, with a lot of really powerful, robust sound. That's really popular on smart speakers. Planet Money podcast, very popular on smart speakers. Um, but the the point of the child-focused um, podcast, like uh, Wow in the World, is that, um, and another thing to think about when smart speakers are talked about, is the communal experience sort of harkens back to the 30s and the 40s when people would gather around the radio. TV is very much, I'm staring at one thing and taking in one thing, but uh, an entire family can participate in listening to a podcast. Parents, and, and this shows up in our Smart Audio Report, Parents report that it's a way for them to help tell their kids a bedtime story, um, entertain their children in a way that it doesn't have them just staring right at a TV. Um, so that communal experience, so podcasts that can be experienced together um, are real popular um, on our smart speakers. Or, or interactive, I would imagine. Exactly. Um, what, are, what are common misconceptions about voice, either as a storytelling medium or as a marketing channel? Is there something that it it can't do that people think it can do? Or what do people get wrong? You know, I think the idea that you need to have visuals in order to get a message across is one of the, the key misperceptions when it comes to um, the, the power of uh, using communications um, versus audio. I mean, when you think about how you, um, you use sound and you use hearing, I mean, it is, it is, your, your ears, it's the, it's the fastest acting emotional trigger that we have. So when you hear a bump in the night, you're, it, that's, it's the sound that makes your heart pound. And as marketers, we've known that for a long time. I mean, think about the number of things that we know because of jingles. I used an example of a Big Mac. I haven't eaten a hamburger in 36 years, but I can tell you that a Big Mac is two all beef patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun. Very good. And I could also tell you the preamble to the Constitution because of Schoolhouse Rock. So, like, that sound, that's how you get messages in. Why? Because it forces your imagination and your brain to work in a way that just staring at an image doesn't. The power of audio in delivering a message, particularly from a marketing perspective, is unsurpassed because you sort of unleash the full capacity of your brain. Is that a tough sell ever uh, for, I mean, you're obviously at NPR, so it's not a tough sell for you, you or the people <laughs> that you work with. but. Uh, I would imagine some marketers must think that, well, no, we need our logo out there. We need to be as visual as possible. And then, and sure, I, I absolutely think people like the glitz of TV. They think it's going to be fun. I mean, it's the same people who say, oh, let's create a VR or I need an app. I mean, um, there is something fun and cool, and everybody loves to see things. I'm not disparaging, you know, that. But I, so yes, in some some cases, it is initially a hard sell, but 
when you go in and you explain that and you give people an audio experience that sort of sends shivers down their spine in a way that watching something, a commercial on TV doesn't, like it's, it's not hard to get over. And when you show the power, um, you know, of what we are able to do, not just because we are audio, but I also have to say part of it is because we are NPR, the power of our brand, the quality that people know that they are gonna get from NPR and the desire for marketing companies and ad agencies to be affiliated with our brand is sort of out of the ballpark, which is why, let me just keep going and saying that right now, podcasts is such an incredible um, place for us to be going and uh, what we are able to do in getting underwriting for our podcast is one of the reasons we've been able to drive like tremendous revenue growth over the last few years. Uh, I'm going to have to ask you what your favorite non-NPR podcast is. Uh, I'd have to say Marketplace. Marketplace yeah. was my absolutely my sort of gateway drug into so public podcasting. Public Radio International? Uh, yeah. That feels like Kai, cheating a little. Kai Rizdahl. <laughs> well, you know, we all have to. And Well, actually, you know what? I have to say the first one I listened to was not as a podcast, but I used to listen to Fresh Air. That was one yeah. of my first introductions to spoken word. Right. Um, was, I'm, I'm a big Kai Rizdahl fan. Too, yeah. Yeah. So I'd have to say like the first podcast I ever downloaded yeah. was Marketplace because I couldn't listen to it on WAMU when I wanted to be listening to Interesting. it. Interesting. Okay. And then, and then you mentioned Fresh Air. Fresh Air. Yes. Right. The ones that I was um, fascinated by as uh, actually even before I got to NPR, another one that I love is Hidden Brain mm -hmm. um, with Shankar is mm -hmm. just an amazing person. And actually one of the reasons why I was so happy to be sold on coming over to NPR is because I was told that my office is going to be right across from Shankar's <laughs> office. So I was like, I am so in taking this job right now. If I could see Shankar, but not right, Shankar so every day. Since you, since you alluded to life before NPR, let's go there. Um, you earned degrees in French and government. We I were, did. We were talking before we turned on the mics. I, as well, earned degrees in French and government, so we have that in common. And we're both Très bien. On peut parler français, si on veut. Si tu veux. Ça va pas aller pour les listeners. Um, uh, your professional background includes things like uh, Conservation International. We talked about the uh, Bush-Clinton Haiti Fund. Clinton-Bush Haiti Fund, yep. Clinton-Bush, sorry if I got it, the order wrong. Um, World Wildlife Foundation. So non-publisher organizations right. that are like ostensibly do-gooder organizations. Yes, absolutely. Talk about your background. How, how did you end up, I actually don't care how you ended up at NPR. We can get to that, but what, what What's my background? That, yeah, let's talk about it. I will tell you a little known fact um, is that one of my first jobs out of school when I graduated from Colby College was that I worked in a newsroom in yeah. DC. I wanted to be a reporter and I quickly realized that wasn't going to work for me okay. um, because I knew that while I loved the news that I didn't have, and I admire people who can do this, I, I wasn't going to be able to be the person that puts a microphone in somebody's face and asks them a really hard question at a hard time. I, I just I really appreciate that other people do that because I want that information, but I, I quickly learned that that wasn't going to be me. Um, but I have always loved the news from the, the moment that I started listening to it when I was a young kid. Uh, and um, I, I then took a, a long, a much longer course than I can explain to you in this podcast in order to get where I landed getting. But ultimately, I spent about 15 years in telecommunications working for MCI. You were at MCI, that's exactly, right. Exactly, yeah. where I went back and I got my MBA with a concentration in marketing. I remember MCI. It's a, you know, <laughs> great. I loved it there. Very entrepreneurial, young people, fantastic place to work. 
after I had spent 15 years there and they had been acquired by Verizon, I decided I really wanted to do something um, that, it, it, I always said that if I was gonna be spending time away from my kids, mm -hmm. I wanted to be time that they could be proud of me. I want the listener to know that you are not spending time away from your kids, even as we are speaking, your daughter is sitting right here. She is. Turning beet red. <laughs> my daughter Marina came with me to CES um, while she's on a break from college and she is being a great staffer telling me where to go and how to get here to this very room. Great. <laughs> oh, glad, glad for that. So, all right, so what did you learn in that sort of uh, nonprofit, make the world better place sort of environment? Uh, and, and how does that apply to something like NPR? Well, you know, what it really was was taking the experience that I had growing up in marketing at MCI and, you know, where we were constantly focused right. on... We, we went, sorry, we, we glossed over that whole crew. So MCI... <laughs> but it, but yeah. what that gave me was a very important focus on generating revenue and in order to be sustainable. And in the case of working for a for-profit, you need to turn share, you know, you need to provide shareholder value. So that was a skill that when I got to the not-for-profit world, and um, as you mentioned, one of the first things that I did was work at WWF on a project called Earth Hour. Um, it was really focusing on what we were able to do to do good, but also how to do that in a sustainable way. So um, that that's sort of the angle that I brought into the world um, of my not-for-profit experience, WWF. I worked in an organization called um, Women for Women International. Is this a paycheck cut from MCI? Uh, yes, I would, I would it was imagine. a paycheck yeah. cut. But you, you know, as I like to say, you typically take about a 20% haircut at least when you go to a not-for-profit, but that is paid off typically in like at least 80% increase in job satisfaction because yeah. you get to feel so good about what it is that mm -hmm. you're doing, particularly working for the organizations that I've been lucky to work with. I mean, when I worked at the Clinton Bush Haiti Fund, you know, I was in Haiti, you know, looking at the most abject, impoverished, down on, you know, every kind of luck experience with these people, yet they were the most dynamic and resourceful and incredibly powerful, brilliant people that were pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. So being able to have that experience was incredible. Um, and being able to take this lens of like, how can we get donations up? How can we fund the work that we are doing and, and trying to generate something that I talk about a lot at NPR, which is the, the virtuous cycle of um, revenue generation. You know, we're a four, I mean, we are a four very mission-based organization. We are all about bringing people together, providing a, a platform for social discourse, speaking people's curiosities, bringing them the news, giving them an experience that's going to be transformative. Um, the better we do that, the more people want to be affiliated with our brand, the more people want to be underwriting and supporting our um, programming. And the more we do that, then we can plow more of that money into our journalism. So it's, it's wonderful when it starts working in the right direction. And, um, and we've been really seeing, I mean, we've just had our fourth, you know, strong, strong year of revenue generation um, because we are plowing all of that money, not into stakeholder or shareholder pockets. We're plowing that right back into our journalism and content creation and making it even better. So you sort of anticipated a, a question I had and we can unpack that a little more. Uh, your mandate at NPR is as uh, marketing officers to, to grow visibility and ultimately revenue. When people think about NPR, there's that P that stands for public. Uh, it's not something people think of necessarily as a profit 
generating organizations. Not. So uh, as a generating revenue towards what end? And, then, and it's to, to feed back into the journalism? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's, it's so that we can um, help support public radio all, all, and it's not just for NPR, it's for our local member stations around the country. I mean, we... Who, so the, the listeners may or may not understand, like the, the individual local stations are not necessarily NPR stations, but they pay to be part of the NPR infrastructure. Correct. Or so, right? so they are not NPR, they are entirely independent. They're anywhere, it shifts, but about 262 member stations around the country. Um, and they buy content from NPR and they, um, and, you know, they, yes, they do pay a fee to have that and they pay for that content, um, but they also create an incredible amount of news and create content and they're incredible journalists all around the country. They feed into our newsroom and help us be anywhere we need to be so that at any given time, NPR really is everywhere. So something's happening in Orlando. We've got a member station covering that in Orlando. When tragedy hit here in Las Vegas, um, you know, we had Las Vegas Public Radio covering that and feeding those reports real time into NPR. So it's one of those things where we take local stories and we make them national because of the power of our public radio news network. And so that is one of the things that we're always looking to feed is making certain that no matter where you are, even if you're outside a big city, you're going to be able to get access to positive, independent um Integ you know, integrity-based journalism. Right. To what extent have you guys ever had underwriters or people that or sponsors or what, however you want to um, call them that, that may not align with the NPR sort of core values? Uh, how do you navigate that? We have very specific guidelines yeah. that we have set up in terms of what um, you know we. We want to be an open platform, but obviously there are rules around that, and it's actually quite simple. We have guidelines, we follow them. Um, you know, our goal is to try to make it so that everybody can use our platform to get their message out, but we also have a certain brand and a certain expectation for quality content. We don't want people screaming. We don't want massive controversial message controversial messages and whatnot and you know it's, it's not that complicated we have guidelines we follow them yeah. just I, have, I, haven't, I haven't surprised that the Koch brothers have been mentioned as underwriters here and there I don't know if you ever hear back from listeners about that we ever. do we yeah. absolutely do yeah. and and that's the power of a full 360 degree I mean one of the divisions and one of the groups that I manage in my division is listener emails and so we get real-time feedback not just on our sponsors but also on our content so you know, I always feel like I'm doing a good job when I get as many emails that tell me I'm leaning too far right as I am I'm leaning too far left. That means I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, so everybody's got a different take on things. It's, it's not our um, place to say who is the right to have a message. Um, it's not our place to say what's true and what's not true. Like, we just put the facts out there. So back to CES and voice, what are the, what are the facts that you are most urgently concerned with? after we turn off the mics. I am uh, really excited about um, seeing where voice-activated technology takes us. Again, as I said, we are all about NPR being everywhere. So that means I want to be on people's phones as they are you know, running and going for a run in the morning. Shower I want to be, right? that would be great. <laughs> 
Okay. Can I get a cut on okay, that? Okay, exactly. <laughs> um, I want to be, um, you know, in, in people's kitchens as they're as they're cooking their dinner. I want to be in their cars as they're driving. Um, you know, I'm really excited to see some of the things that Samsung is doing in terms of bringing those technologies like Alexa and Google to their TVs. I'm super excited to see how voice activated technologies takes place in cars right now. There's a lot of cool things that are going on. I was just reading something about how I can be in my house and say, hey, I'm heading over to Leslie's house later on today. Um, can you set those directions up and then I can get in my car and so I'm not sitting in my car hitting up ways for where I want to be going. My, my car is already programmed. It's going to tell me where to go. And by the way, as I drive by a giant, it reminds me that, you know, I need orange juice. Uh, that's really cool stuff that's making the normal tasks that I have to do a lot easier. So I'm, I'm really pumped to see people push on that, not just as a marketer for NPR because I want more people to get access to our content but I also just want my life to be easier too. So it'd be terrific if I had a frictionless experience in my car and I wasn't worrying about plugging things in and everything could be done by my voice. Great, well, we'll come back next year and check in and see how things have progressed. I'd like that. All right, thanks Meg. Uh, Meg Goldthwaite is of course the CMO of NPR. It was a pleasure to have her here live at CES. Uh, I'm Brian Breaker. You've been listening to AdLib, produced today by Alfred Mascaroni and possibly also Max Sternlicht. Uh, check us out at adh.com. Subscribe to us at iTunes. You can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever there are good podcasts. Be sure to give us lots of stars. Tell a friend. Come back next week. <laughs>